sun till its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. I want to welcome everybody. If you have a prayer request, please fill out a yellow slip uh, for our prayer folder. We can pray for you this week and also pray during the service. Also, uh, we're collecting food for the Helping Hands. Please, uh, your donations can go on the back uh, rack that we have in the lobby. And also, too, we have the change for the babies uh, for their specific needs of wipes and diapers and stuff like that that come with the babies and for families that can't afford. Uh, we can help them out. Uh, the Treehouse Ministry has a wonderful ministry in helping young ladies and dads out with that stuff. The Bible says, for I'm going to do a brand new thing. See, I've already begun. Don't you see it? I will make a road through the wilderness of the world of my people to go home and create rivers for them in the desert. Isaiah 43:19. Steve, do you have uh, information about the... Written what? in 1899 by Louis E. James, there's power in the blood is based on Paul's letter to the Colossians. In the first chapter, he was writing about thanksgiving and prayer. In verses 13 to 15, we read, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son who loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's stand together and sing Power in the Blood. And this is an epiphanal confession, so I'll just read the words and you can listen and then in the quietness of your own heart, uh, confess if there's any area that we're talking about that you need to confess. So let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you in confession. And first we confess our lack of enthusiasm for spiritual matters. God, all 
also we confess for our unconcern for those we know who don't know Christ. God, we confess for the apathy that we have towards families that are being broken. And God, sometimes we feel for the helpless feelings we have about the world. Now, sovereign God, help us to trust you more and through the power of Christ make a difference. Amen. And we're given the assurance of forgiveness from 1 Peter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And then we're guided how to live in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. So you must live as Christ's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living and satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better than but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who has chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Let's continue to worship our God and sing for joy.
background for Take My Life and Let It Be? Take My Life and Let It Be was written by Francis Havergal in 1874 and set to a tune written in 1827 by Henry H. Duvall Malone. The theme for this familiar hymn comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Father in heaven, we just give you thanks and for the opportunity that we have to give to your kingdom and for your gift. We just pray, Father God, uh, we thank you that we can also come before you and that you do take our life. And we want to consecrate it to you, Lord, everything that we do, our lives, our actions, our words, our giving, Lord, everything to you, Christ. Take it. In Jesus' name. Let's come before, how you doing, brother? Good to see you. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we just give you praise and thanksgiving for you being an awesome God. That you run the universe and everything about it. And yet, Lord, you take your ear and you bend it over towards us. And that we can hear everything that we say, not only in our mouths, but from our hearts. You know the brokenness that we experience. And you know all the joys and sorrows of this life that we experience and you're in tune to what we need. And Lord, today we bring to you our concerns and our prayers. We pray for our country. We pray for this critical spot that it's in right now. We just pray for our president. We pray for Congress. We pray for uh, our judicial branch. We pray for all the disruption that's going on in our society. And also too, Lord, the concerns that we have over different policies that are being made. Lord, we know that you're the sovereign God, the Lord of the universe, and we give you praise that you're in control. Nothing hits you by surprise, and there's a purpose in it all. Help us to see that, Lord, and help us to live out our calling in these days. I pray also, too, for those in our church that are struggling. I think of Lucille, and I think of Howard, who had his 
um, and, and Betty, both who are battling cancer, Lord, we pray especially for Howard's head, that you'll bring healing to it. We pray also, too, for Frank Wonka, who continues to battle his breathing. And also we pray for Sharon Long and Everett and Sharon and her breathing also after the COVID. We pray also, too, Father God, for those who are struggling still with sorrow and, and grief in their hearts. And we pray especially also, too, for those who are going through difficulties in their homes right now and their marriages, Lord, and family crises, Lord, that you will work a mighty work in there and that uh, all will see the need for you, Christ, to be the center and everybody to act appropriately with you being the center of their homes. Pray also, too, Lord, for Mary and for also um, uh, for uh, Joyce and their backs. And we pray also for Don, who had his back surgery this past week. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, the removal of some of that arthritis and also to narrowing where that uh, uh, nerve goes through and for relief for him. We also pray for John and the same thing that's happened with him this past week and that you'll give them both relief and that they'll get back into their... Um, pray also, too, for Monica, Lord. You know the surgery and the chemo she's going through like now. I just lift her up and David and their children in this time. And, Father, there's other people that uh, maybe we didn't get to put our slip in today. Lord, hear our prayers. We lift people up by name. You know their situation. We ask you hear our prayers. Now, Father, as we come before your word, Lord, speak to our hearts. Help us open up our minds and to see what you have to say to us today. And it's through Jesus Christ I pray this. Amen. He said, I can't do it. I can't do anything. When he was cut from the church baseball team, then he was cut from his junior high school team, then he was cut from his junior high track team. He laid in bed and said, God, what is it that you have for me? What's your plan? I'm not doing so well with this. He said, I found myself the next day on a cross-country field running the two miles, a distance that I had never run before. And suddenly, I made the team. He said, I got the leather jacket, and I began to envision my girlfriend wearing my leather jacket. And he said, that's how it all began. And in 1964, as a junior in high school at East High, Jim Ryan found himself beating the four-minute mile. He went and made eighth place in California relays that year in 1964. In 1965, he set records in the AAU championship in the race. Jim Ryan also was the only high school person ever to go into the Olympics. And he was named by ESPN as the high school athlete of all times, beating out Tiger Wood and LeBron James. High School of the Year athlete, 1965. After high school in 1966, Ryan began to be known from Sports Illustrated as a Sportsman of the Year. And ABC had a thing for him called the Field Athlete of the Year. 
1967, he won the indoor half mile. In 1964, he also became the first ever to compete in the Olympics as a high school student. Jim Ryan's career went on for a while, and then in 1972, he turned from amateur to pro. And for two more years, he ran. And after that, he finished well. And that we know he went on to serve the state and the country as a senator for America. Jim Ryan finished well. And today, that's what we have in our closing of First Peter. Peter wanted his people to finish well. You remember what was going through. They were being beaten. They were being persecuted because of Nero wanting to build Rome and they were using them as their excuse. And Peter, as a pastor, is addressing this congregation and wants them to finish well. It's so easy to give up towards the end and want to throw in the towel. But Jim Ryan didn't do it. And Peter doesn't want any of his people to throw in the towel too. These persecuted Christians, he wanted them to know how special they were. They were chosen by God, saved by Jesus Christ's grace on the cross, and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were empowered to live differently, even amongst persecution and hatred. And Peter is challenging them to arm themselves. And last week, as we, he threw in another wedge into this whole thing about Satan, and how Satan comes with his demons. And how Satan is not as powerful as God. And he only can be in one place at one time. But he has his demons. And how he works on Christians every day. Through his demons. And how he works to put pressure on us. And he comes on with those three pressures. The world system. The flesh. Our own dearly flesh. And the devil. And they come and attack. And sometimes the devil even used the other two. Very specifically for us. And it's at this point that Peter now is finishing up the book and he wants to give his last message to these guys and gals. And he says to them, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, if you notice here, Peter is not saying that things aren't going to get tough in this life just because you're a Christian. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he's something else. He says one of God's curriculums is that you're going to go through difficult times in your life. And he said, and for a little while, it's not going to be long, but it's not going to be for eternity. But there are going to be times that you're going to go through difficult time. And God uses the curriculum of suffering. He puts us in situations And sometimes even devil himself. But he's got a holding pattern for him. He doesn't allow him to tempt us beyond what we're able to bear. In fact, the Bible here says all the things that happen in your life. All the suffering, all the difficulties, all the circumstances that you go through have a purpose in God's plan. And those predicaments that he puts you in serve his purpose. For what? For your good, Romans 8, 28 says. And when he also comes and uses things that seem so devastating to us. You think about it. You take chloride and you take sodium and by themselves they're very deadly. But when they're put together, they're salt. Last night I had some french fries and what did I put on them? Salt. Made it tastier. My cardiologist wouldn't appreciate that. He probably still thinks it's poison. 
but they do spice things. And what God does, he takes the things in our lives and he makes them work for our good so that we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, it says in verse 29 there. And the Apostle Paul knew this himself. You know, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul had an incident in his own life that he had a terrible illness in his life. And he said that God sent that in his life to keep him from being cocky and being boastful. In fact, the Bible says here, Paul says that God sent it as a messenger through Satan to harass him, to keep him from being what? Conceited. Because Paul was a strong Jew and he was a powerful preacher, but God knew that Paul needed to be simmered down. And so what he did, he sent Paul, this thorn in the flesh Paul speaks of, to slow him down. And notice what it says. The apostle Paul prayed three times that God would take that away from him. And yet, what does the Bible say? God says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And didn't take it away from him. But that you realize, Paul, that you need to trust me and rest on me by my grace and that you're going to be made perfect in your weakness when you trust me. See, this is where God works in many mysterious ways. And notice, as we're dealing this, what does Peter say here? He says, you're going to suffer a little while. Why? That the, the, the God of all grace will bring you through that. That's what we need to understand. So many times we can be so full of ourselves and so empowered by ourselves and our own self-righteousness and our own goodness that we don't even realize that we're cutting out God from our life and that we're not tending and, and spending the time with him and depending on him. Instead, we're depending on our own fleshly strength to be able to handle these situations. And I know... Sometimes when we get these painful experiences in our life, we are wonderful at being victims. I can, great, I can wallow like the rest of the people on the Oprah Winfrey show. Or I can whine and cry like the best of them. But God is causing that in my life to mold me, to change me. And it's his grace that is working in me to say, Dave, you need to depend on me and not on your own strength. And to understand this, you see the beautiful song that we sing, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. We talk about the salvation that he gives us that's grace-filled. But also, too, that song talks about it's grace that brought me safe here this time. That's God's grace. And it's going to take me on to the future and get me through it. But it's all that dependent on God's grace. It's tragic for me to think about what some evangelicals even think about the God, grace of God. Because they don't understand it still. I was reading, and this is the interesting thing about it, folks. When we say sola grace, which means only grace, we're saved only by grace. Think about it. What are we saying? We are saying grace means... That God is only good. And God has done something good for me. 
And grace means that there's nothing good in me. Now, this is hard for us to understand. It's for some Christians to gobble this up. Because those two statements make us struggle. What do you mean? I'm a good person. No. When it comes to God's perfection, we all fall short. And we see that it only but for God's goodness that we're saved. Because there's nothing good in me. And if we understand that. But you see, evangelicals, 84% of evangelicals think that this statement's right. When it comes to our salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Folks, that is not true. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. None of us can help ourselves when it comes to salvation. We cannot be good enough or perfect enough to get into God's heaven. And yet evangelicals believe that statement to true when it's not. That's not the Bible. In another survey, they found that 49% agreed with this other statement. Other ways to come to God besides Jesus Christ alone. There are other ways. The Bible says no. There is no other way way. In fact, the Bible says to us that we can't help ourselves and that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ alone. And then an amazing 34% evangelicals said that, that all good people go to heaven. And the Bible says there's no one who's good. Without God and Christ in us, we are sinners lost. In Romans 3, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one person. There is no one who understands or seeks after God. All have turned away from him, and they have together become worthless. This is the understanding the Bible has, and that we totally need to depend on the Christ of the cross to save us from our sins. And it's interesting, Henry Ironsides, who was a pastor, had a guy get up and speak. And after he spoke, he spoke about what God had done and how God had saved him. And then one lady raised her hand afterwards and said, um, is there anything good that you did for your salvation? He says, there's nothing good that he did. He said, the only thing I contributed is my sin and my trying to run away from God. That's what I contributed and if it wasn't for God, by his grace, touching me and bringing me back to salvation, I would not be saved. There are people who are confused about this. I've, I've done funerals before, and I've gone to funerals. And how many times have we heard about the guy who was such a good guy? And he was a good man. And I heard of a, a story once of a woman who was sitting in the front row. Her husband had passed away, and she's sitting there with her son. And all of a sudden, the preacher gets talking about how good her husband was. And she hits her son and said, you better go up and see if that's your father up in there. Because I don't recognize that guy. You see, the Bible says the only way we can be saved is through Jesus Christ. The Bible says to us in Ephesians, we are dead in our sins until God makes us alive. Again, we're blind in 1 Corinthians 4 until God touches our eyes so we can see. That our sin 
We cannot be saved from our sin unless God saves us from our sin and forgives us. And Jeremiah says that God is the only one who could make us good and that we are lost only but for God to save us through Jesus Christ. And that's where we come to this point where he says, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Not only does God save us through Jesus Christ's grace, but then he gives us glory. The eternal glory that is waiting for us. It's the brightness of God that even Moses had to wear a face cover over him and that we are going to be in that glorious presence of God at the end of time when he glorifies us when we die. But in the meantime, we get to experience that glory now, that brilliance, and that brilliance is his joy that God gives us in our hearts by knowing that he's present with us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has ready for us in heaven. That's the glory that we have waiting for us. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the glory we experience now is the joy inside of our hearts. When we experience and we walk in Christ and that joy should be overwhelming and people should see not grumpy Christians but Christians who are filled with God's joy and delight that God is with us the psalmist says it too he says delight yourself in the Lord Psalm 37 he says taste and see that the Lord is good and we should have these effervescent personalities of joy in our heart and that we have in the presence of God are his treasures that he wants to give us now. And it's the treasure of joy that we experience. And in him, we have these pleasures of God that are joyful in our hearts that come to us forever. That's what God wants to do. He wants to make us the most joyful people on earth. Even in the midst, as Peter is talking here about persecution... That knowing that God is carrying them by his grace, they are filled with this joy everlasting. And that joy comes because of what Christ has done. You see, I didn't use this, so don't worry about it. But <laughs> here it is. This is what we have right now, is Christ, pure, perfect light. Before Dave Henyon came to Christ, he was a mess. He was dirty. He tried to make him look like he was clean, and I would, but my pants would get dirty, and I'd be still dirty and have all these bacteria. But when Christ came into my life, he put me under his perfect, pure light. And that God sees you in Christ and me in Christ under the purity of Christ. And as we grow, there's something happening underneath this veil that even God sees us in this purity. Inside, what we have going on is God is cleaning us up. It's that sanctification process that he's doing and working us through these bad circumstances that we're suffering and the difficulty, and he's cleaning us up. 
And even though we're covered with the purity of Christ, he's even making us more clean and more pure as he works us through the sanctification process and makes us right with God by the Holy Spirit and through our circumstances, which he finally says will help himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in the kingdom. And that he will make us whole. The words there, katarizo means cauterize or, or seals it up and makes it perfect. Histemi, another Greek word he uses there, which talks about making us stand strong. And thelemolo, which means to make us stable. He keeps us grounded. As even when we're tempted... He keeps us grounded as we look to him for the power of his grace to heal and strengthen us as we go through the temptations of life. Billy Graham one time was with Larry King. And Larry King asked him, how did you keep yourself from all the scandals that all these other preachers are going through and the difficulties? And Larry King at 80 years old said, he followed Jesus' pattern. And he says, the scriptures say. And then he went on and said, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he said, Larry, there's no temptation that has seized any of us that's common to every guy and gal in this world. He said, but God is faithful. He's the one. His grace, it's that grace that keeps us from stumbling. If we cling to that grace, and even though when we're tempted, that he provides a way out of that, if we keep on in his grace and stay on his grace, he'll give us a way to escape that temptation. It's the same thing when we're going through difficulties in our time and we're tired. We're worn out. Life can be exhausting. And it can bring us depression and sadness by things that happen in our life. And, 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 and the Bible is filled with verses that says, be on your guard. Take courage. Stand in the Lord. Don't stand in your own strength, but in the grace of God. And then he says, let... Let's not grow weary in Galatians of well-doing. For in due time, as you keep on doing that good and you don't get worn out by all the things that are said and pokes and everything, he says, you will reap a good thing if you faint not. And that God, in Philippians, he says, as God is working in you, he will do according to his good purposes and refine you to be stronger. In Genesis, Noah was exhausted. 120 years of working on his, and being mocked for building the ark. 120 years in the middle of the desert. Come on, Noah, what are you thinking? And here, the Bible says to us that in Genesis 6, 8, it said he found favor, God's grace on him in his building that ark. And he saved his family. You see, that's how it is. When we lean on that grace, that he, the one who put all the stars in the skies, he, the one who 
formed you in your mother's womb. He, the one who knows what you were going to come to today and what you're going to come to in the next six years, 10 years, 20 years. He's the one who fit it all together will restore you by his grace. And you see, Peter then says, here's the staple. Why we can know this is because God's providence. It's him who has the dominion. He's the one who's in control, not you. You can't do it. You've got to depend on that grace. And that dominion is not just here today and gone tomorrow. Satan is not powerful as God is. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. It is God who has the dominion over it all. And he will be dominion forever and ever. And it's for you. It doesn't matter what the political mindset is of our day. God is in control of that. It doesn't matter who's walking down or who's going to overrun whoever. God is in control. And he will not. His dominion will last forever. And that's the basis of our faith. It's because of his dominion is forever and ever. Nothing can thwart his purposes and strength. And that's when Peter then says, and I want you to remember this. There are people God will bring, people of the church, people from outside that will be on your side, that I've appointed will come by you and strengthen you. And be thankful for what God gives you. Be thankful for those people. He says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as regard to him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. See, he says, he says, this is a grace of God to have people like him. Stand firm in the faith, this grace of God. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Here he's talking about Babylon, which he is really referring to Rome, that Nero is using to beat the Christians to death. And he says there's this woman in Babylon. Who's that? That's his wife. Peter's wife, who later on would die on a cross. And Peter... They tried to get Peter to flip in his faith. And while he watched his wife die on the cross, and he would not recant and encouraged his wife, said, honey, it's going to be all right. God's got you. Just trust his grace. And she died that way. And then he died himself, and he asked not to be crucified like she was or like Christ. He was unworthy, but to flip his cross upside down and die upside down because he was unworthy to die like Christ did. This is what Peter is referring to. And then also John Mark, who became his friend. And he had an affinity with John Mark. John Mark got cowardly for a while and ran from the ministry, just like Peter did. And Peter had a fine spot in his heart because he was restored to the ministry and became a brave writer of the gospel. That Peter gave him a lot of the information for the second gospel we have, which is Mark's gospel. And he treated him like he was his own son. 
And he said, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And what he's talking about here is that this affinity that we have for each other. He's talking about this kiss. You see, back in those days, even the men would kiss each other. And, and in some of our cultures today, that still happens. And women would kiss, kiss, kiss each other because they were closely connected because they knew that they were going to possibly even die as they went out of the house that day. And so they would kiss each other with a warm affection. And he says, peace to you all in Christ. And that affection is there for us to love people and to care for people and to understand and give them that encouragement and that affection. You see, we have a stoic way of being in our society. Before the COVID thing, we were shaking our hands. That's the thing that came from the Romans. And the Romans shook hands. The reason why they did is because they would shake somebody coming up to them because they would make sure that the dagger was not in their hand, and they were checking it out to make sure the person wasn't going to try to kill them. And that's why they shook the hand. Later on now in our society today, we see that uh, we still shake the hand, and that we saw also in Christianity how there became the bar in some churches to separate us from the people, and that the, the clergy were different than the people. And that kind of slipped in also with this standoffish thing. But Paul, I mean Peter here, is sharing to us the deep, intimate concern that we're to have for one another. Paul Tarnier, who is a famous psychologist in our generation, says one of the things that is eating the malady of our day today is loneliness. People in marriages that are lonely... Even though they have a partner, they feel lonely. That there's a, a, a distance that they don't feel with their partner. And people in, even find themselves not personally connected like they did in the past. And this whole idea of, of feeling a distance from each other. And we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be sensitive to our partners. We need to be sensitive to people. I know there have been times in my own ministry that God has used me. When I'm sensitive and listening to the Holy Spirit, He can use me to hear people's hearts. Not too long ago, I found out about one person that I didn't even know that I touched. But several years ago, this gal was on an elliptical machine, and our, we made eye contact, but I saw that her eyes were red. And I thought, oh boy, I better go over and see what's going on here. And I walked over and I said, hi, how you doing? And she started crying. And she was going along and I said, are you okay? And she said, no. <laughs> she was crying. And I said, is there anything I can talk to you or help you about? And she started talking about that the night before she found out that her husband had been cheating on her. And um, she was in a bad place, and she was so angry, and she didn't know how she was going to tell her children, and all this kind of stuff, and how, how her brokenness that she felt inside, and she kept on pumping on this elliptical machine, and we talked, talked for about 25 minutes, and finally she got down, and we, I prayed with her, and 
kept in contact with her at the Y and, and uh, about, and that was uh, probably four years ago now. And a few months ago, she admitted to me, she said, that day, God must have had a place for you to be there. Because I was thinking about going home and putting my head in the oven and turning it on and dying because I was so broken inside. And when you talked to me, you began to realize that my children and my grandchildren were more important than even this sadness that hit my heart. And um, um, we've been friends ever since. And you see, and, and it's those things that we need to, you know, sometimes I know I'm thinking, as that thing started, I knew I had to get somewhere, and I'm thinking, oh, Dave, you know, you don't have the time for this. Thank the Lord God moved me not to, 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 to go with that thought and rather spend some time with that lady that day. Uh, otherwise, she would have been probably a goner. You see, the Bible speaks to us, and here especially, that we need to really be open to his spirit and understand how he works in his grace in our lives and that we can't do it on our own. We need to trust in his Holy Spirit and that we need, I'm right now I'm so concerned about the church, our denomination, the United Methodist denomination, the Baptist denomination, all these things that are impacting our denominations right now and that are not good things. They're sin in God's eyes and they're destroying our denominations and they're taken away from the witness of Christ and yet we can't give up. We need to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ that he will supply what we need and how we're to get there and that we need to depend on the Holy Spirit and not on our own wisdom. This is the tragedy in the church today. They're trying to open the doors to everybody and anybody, and it doesn't matter what your moral stance or anything. Yes, we need to open up Christ's forgiveness, but it's his forgiveness, not con not patting them on the back for living in sin. No, that's wrong. And we need to help them to get on track with Jesus and not get Jesus on track with the world. And this is what's happening. And because of it, the church is losing its power and its strength. And it's lost itself. And it's, it, it, it can be sickening. But that's where we need to depend on God's grace. And depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in this and that it can work out to a great evangelistic outreach and many souls can be saved as we trust Christ's grace to heal this sickness in the church right now. And to bring, you know, it, 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 it is so sad to me that the church has lost so much strength in our America and the moral values are gone down so Badly, I talk to teachers in high school, and it makes me sick to hear what is going on. I heard a situation not too long ago. I'm not going to share it because it, it just sickened me. And it's putting pressure on good kids who are raised in good Christian homes and are, are, are being trying to be sucked in to the evil of our society and the sin that Satan wants the church to be in, but also our godly, our children away from God and into the immorality of our society today. And we need to go back to trusting the grace of Christ and that his power to change the hearts of men and women and children 
for Christ. And that's what we're missing. We're missing that trust. We're missing that power. It reminds me of the story I was listening to about the, um, uh, the Rose Bowl parade, and they had all these beautiful floats. And they started the parade, and as the parade was on, it came to a grinding halt. And the TV producer saying, what's going on? And they're all worried about, what, what, how come the parade has stopped and, and we only got a certain amount of time to get all these floats through? And finally, they found that there was a float that was stalled, that was blocking the rest of the parade. And they said, well, what's wrong with the float? Let's, let's see if we can push it out of the way or anything. And here it was, it had run out of gas. And it was Standard Oil's float. Now they got more gas than the world, and yet their own float, and this is what has happened to the church. We have lost our power of the Holy Spirit, and here we're supposed to be endowed with it, and we're missing out on it, and we should be making advances against these people and these programs that are trying to push this sinful agenda, and instead we're flopping, and people in the church are flopping because they're bowing down to these things rather than trusting God's power and the Holy Spirit by the grace of God to win the victory. And we need that in the church. We need that in our own lives to be able to walk in that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that power. We thank you that it's by the grace, your grace, Jesus, that we're saved. Nothing we did, only trusting you. And I ask you, Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we thank you that you've given us this power, helped us, the church, to walk boldly and trust in your grace to turn this thing around. Help us, Lord, to figure out where we fit in and how we can do that in our own denomination and then in the world. Thank you, Christ, for being here today. And thank you for this reminder we're going to take now of your communion supper, which remind us of the grace that we have for us as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. This time we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, and we're going to listen as we prepare ourselves for it. And the Holy Supper that our Lord gave us He said these words, if I can find them. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this Holy Supper which we're about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus has sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and fulfill for us the obedience of the law and that even the bitter and shameful death on the cross by his death and resurrection and ascension, he established a new covenant.